0: The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with John Thomas Flynn, who is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Ask the CIO, SLED edition on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, John Thomas Flynn. Welcome, everyone. Our guest today is Dr. Alan Shark, Executive Director of the Public Technology Institute. Welcome, Alan, to Ask the CIO SLED Edition, Federal News Network, State and Local Show. A
1: pleasure to be here. Thank you, John.
0: Before we get started on IT issues, I'd like to ask our guests, tell us about your organization, Public Technology Institute, PTI, and of course, your, your background
1: as well, Alan. Okay. How much time do we have? Uh. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> PTI actually was formed in the 70s at a time when technology was a mystery. I mean, no man would actually have a keyboard on his desk. That was too administrative, too secretarial. Um, we were formed by a number of public interest groups, including the National League of Cities, uh, National Association of Counties, uh, International City-County Managers Associations, even um, the mayors. They kind of pulled together. They got a, a grant from the uh, National Science Foundation, the Ford Foundation, others, and the rest is history. So now 46 years into uh, to where we are today, uh, I'm the fourth exec uh, to serve. I've been there almost 15 years. And our job is to help local governments. Cities and counties understand and embrace technology in all facets. We do that through all our programs, which we may get to talk about. Uh, but it's a very dynamic organization. We're very excited uh, by a recent development uh, where we have merged with the with CompTIA, and CompTIA uh, is the world's largest independent certification group for technology. But they also have a strong industry program, and they have a very strong SLED program, and we hopefully, will fulfill the L. Um, I like to call it love, but it's local government, in which case we are a, now a full subsidiary of CompTIA, effective January 1st, 2019. It has enormous implications for us, all positive. Cultures are very similar, and we'll be able to expand our programs and training in our own certifications, publications, and meetings to CIOs across the country. So it's an extremely positive and exciting development where they're going to actually... Uh, help us grow, and uh, and that to me is is probably the most exciting news that I've had in my nearly 15 years at PTI. I saw where you're a Trojan, right? Southern California. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I have. I'm very proud of the fact that uh, I have a doctorate in public administration. Uh, And I've been teaching for the last little over a decade at the university level, at the master's level, and I'm very proud to be a non-tenured professor. (laughs) It gives me a lot of flexibility.
0: (laughs) I've I've been in that position. Well, I'll talk to you about that after the show. I'm very interested in hearing more, as a matter of fact. Um, You're also, uh, you know, we're with the, uh, what was it, the construction battalions?
1: Well, yes. I, you know, As I try to inspire my students, I did everything indirectly <laughs> to get where I am today. And so, yeah, I was a, a U.S. Navy Seabee uh, joining the U.S. Navy to stay out of Vietnam. I was still wanting to be a patriot, <laughs> and I wound up there twice, well, uh, good for both in world. construction. And uh, it was the one of the finest experiences I ever have. I have that can-do spirit to this day, uh, and I'm very proud of that service. Uh, four years. Well, thank you for your service,
0: sir. We really appreciate it. You and our mutual friend, Doug Robinson, who's the executive director of, the Na- of NASIO, the National Association of State Chief Information Officers, you and, you and he had a previous uh, – he's a previous guest on our show, as a matter of fact. In fact, he was our inaugural guest on our show in the fall. But you and Doug were co host of a webinar last week. It was a technology forecast for state and local in 2019. Give us a little background, because that wasn't your first
1: rodeo with Doug, was it? No, Doug and I go back a long time. In fact, we have uh, been uh, producing this uh, webinar every January for the last 10 years. And every year, the number gets higher and higher. And we have to re-up our license for whatever platform we're using. This year, we had over 660 people that were registered. Um, That's relatively historic. But we basically pulled together... Our thoughts and our predictions, based on our research and our experiences, on what's going on at the state level and what's going on with cities and counties, and see how they kind of come together or contrast.
0: Well, why don't we ju- why don't we jump into that? Let's discuss the results of your survey. Uh, why don't you tell us just overall about the uh, uh, you know the background of the, of the the questions you wanted to ask and the survey results?
1: Yeah, we partner with uh, Tech and a few other partners, just as uh, uh, the states uh, deal with some other groups. But in the end, we ask our cities and counties across the country uh, a number of leading questions, and we leave a lot of opportunity for blanks, things that they fill out that we have not asked them. Those are always the fun answers because we always find surprises. One of the things that we did not report you're hearing for the first time is a new complaint that is growing or concern that many of the new people coming into government are clueless about government. They really hmm. didn't have a deep background in understanding how local government works, let alone state government. So they find that there's a great deal of impatience, uh, mixed expectations of what to expect at the government level. So they almost have to start before getting into the onboarding process with adding a whole thing about Civics 101. Interesting. So, but getting back to our survey, uh, both uh, the state and the uh, local government CIOs for the last five years have ranked security and risk management as number one, um, no exception. Uh, now, the, the definition has kind of changed over the years, but security is, is certainly number one. We basically have listed it not as a concern, but as a crisis, uh, crisis in resources, a crisis in getting uh, the people to pay attention at the employee level. Uh, so it's multifaceted, but that was number one followed by the obvious, budget, cost, control, fiscal management, Uh, whereas actually for the states, that appeared as number six, but we're still in the top ten. Number three was interesting, customer relationship management. That has moved up very rapidly as local governments are obviously closer to the public. Uh, It was number seven for NACIO, but the whole idea of how do we better engage with citizens, you know, what are the techniques that work, uh, what are the things that we could do better using different platforms, whether it be an app, a website, or other uh, forms such as 311 systems, which uh, continue to grow in popularity? And then, obviously, consolidation, optimization, uh, the idea that we don't need all these separate redundant systems to be all over the place. Um, and we're finding that there's really incentives, both financial, economic, and political, to move into more consolidated facilities. So we want to optimize what it is that we have, and then there's this move afoot to kind of think enterprise wide, think of the the whole county, the whole city, as opposed to a collection of its parts. And when we look at where technology began at the federal, state, and local level, it began in accounting, it began in HR. I mean, that's where it had its origins, and it really was a box-based technology, uh, and it grew, uh, and it's kind of morphed in different ways. But now we're back to Can we find common solutions, single sign-on, multiple applications across various platforms? It was important. Number six probably wouldn't have appeared seven years ago, but identity and access management is becoming, it's growing very, very rapidly. While it was only number 10 for Nasio, understanding who our people are, uh, both from the citizen end uh, or public end, because not everybody that communicates with government is a citizen, and that is becoming a technical term. Um, but there are residents. There is the public. We have to know who they are, and we internally have to understand who has access to what. As governments have grown in the complexity and the confidentiality of information that's collected, we really need to understand better who has access to what and under what conditions. And then, as we push more people towards being online, um, we have to focus on broadband wireless, which is number seven. Number five for Nessio, but those two have kind of um, danced around over the years, but broadband wireless connectivity is critical for the unserved, uh, the digital divide, uh, as well as providing robust services to the general public. Number eight is cloud services, the ability, or I like to say managed services, the ability to not have to necessarily maintain the infrastructure. We can own the data, but maybe we don't have to be the ones that are managing it. And we may come back to that because that's going to be a trend that I think is going to continue to grow. And then number nine is digital government, this whole idea of digitizing information, providing stuff to the public based on our perception of what their needs are. And then finally, number 10, data management and analytics, the idea that data for public consumption is terrific, but data for better um, decision-making is even better, to be able to have more direct ways to justify decisions. It's, uh, it's very
0: interesting, isn't it, that of your top 10 technology priorities for local governments, uh, each one of them matches up with something in the top 10 for, for NACIO. Yes. And uh, not unusual, but certainly it's, uh, you know, they always say about Brandeis and states that are laboratories of democracy, but certainly in local government where you are much more um, at the beck and call and and responsible to the citizens, much more so than state, and obviously much more so than the federal government in many yeah. ways. Uh, it's not surprising that some of these things are, are so critical, particularly the issue of uh, digital government, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go back on the, uh, to the uh, another area that you surveyed. was what you, you called them emerging IT areas, the, uh, uh, the technologies, I guess, that you're most likely to see in the next three to five years. I was also fascinated by some of these because how similar they are, but in some respects, uh, you know, a different priority.
1: Yeah, and I'm not sure these are as much priorities or things that people are really starting to look at. Uh, We identified six. Uh, There are obviously more, but the the number one is the Internet of Things. The Internet of Things, in which everything is interconnected, um, seems to have a lot of interest, especially as you get into how it is defined between traffic sensors, people movement sensors. Uh, To able people understand what's going on in our localities and how things are connected, whether it be video, voice, or data. Number two, no surprise, artificial intelligence and machine learning. And it's amazing um, to see how many local governments today are actually using some of this technology today in its basic form. Like what? They're using it for uh, chatbots. And, you know, it used to be, I used to be in the private sector for a brief period of time working with a voice response system company. And that was all canned information. You'd say something, you'd prompt something with a touchtone phone, you get a canned answer. Today, these systems are learning and you can have an amazing conversation. And I've even said, you're not a real person, are you? And the system said, that is correct. (laughs) I can do just as well. And I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. But we have systems that are helping answer and direct Citizens to various uh, places where they can have something further resolved and they can address the public in various languages. So there's an enormous amount of uh, experimentation in this. They're using Siri, they're using Alexa, uh, they're building it the, into their system. So stay tuned. We're going to see a lot more in that area. We're going to take a short break now. Our guest today is Dr. Alan
0: Shark, Executive Director of the Public Technology Institute. You're listening to Ask the CIO Sled Edition on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm John Thomas Flynn. Federal News Radio is now Federal News Network. All the intel you need, all in one place. Technology.
1: Ask the CIO. Defense. On DOD.
0: Pay and benefits, breaking news, and daily headlines. On air at 1500 a.m. Email alerts, ebooks, videos, webinars, and more at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome back to Ask the CIO SLED Edition on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm John Thomas Flynn, and my guest today is Dr. Alan Shark, Executive Director of the Public Technology Institute. Alan, before the break, we were discussing artificial intelligence and other emerging IT areas in local government. Please continue.
1: Yeah. Well, we identified the first Internet of Things, artificial intelligence. The third one is blockchain Um, And, you know, to some, that's a mystery. Um, I also teach, and it's amazing. Students say, what is that? Is that Bitcoin? I said, no, but it's similar. But the idea of blockchain is really becoming a more quote-unquote foolproof way of both saving, sharing, and accessing data. And so we're seeing some very interesting applications already occurring. For example, Cook County is using blockchain for their records management systems when it comes to deeds and property. Mm. So anytime you have important records uh, this is a great way to chain them together in a digital environment that makes it very, very difficult, if not impossible, to tamper with. So number four would be connected autonomous vehicles. Clearly, that's a local issue in that you have to have the digital infrastructure to make these things be able to move and work. Uh, so it's not just having somebody come in, and I think there's a misconception that these vehicles will be connected to satellite, and that's all you need. And the answer is no, you need to have An infrastructure at the local level uh, that supports what looks like Wi-Fi, but it's for these autonomous systems to be able to connect with each other, to understand the rules of the road, and to communicate from vehicle to vehicle. Similar would be unmanned aircraft systems. Uh, I've identified somewhere of like 22 different applications, all civilian. You know, we still kind of call these drones, but some of these newer elements are both tethered or untethered. They're great for traffic management. They're great for surveying, and they're also great for safety in terms of looking at rails, tracks, uh, and looking for things that humans might not detect. They're good for surveying. Um, the list goes on. So they're paying a lot of attentions, especially when it comes to GIS mapping, when they can use these v- vehicles as opposed to piloted um, uh, planes uh, for doing the mapping every so many years. And the last one is augmented virtual before, reality. Before
0: you go ahead, yeah. I, I'm going to let you know about something we were doing in Sacramento uh, geez, it must be seven or eight years ago now. A number of us, CIOs and former CIOs in state government there, started up a, a radio controlled flying club. Oh. And we okay. were at, this is before it was called drones. These were all fixed wing aircraft, so uh-huh. to speak. We'd sure. go up to Folsom Lake and have a heck of a time and building, building, you know, and rebuilding rebuilding after crashes our own systems. And it's funny how it progressed to being the, uh, as you say, with GIS now, these things run almost by themselves, not to mention the, the camera work involved.
1: Yeah, phenomenal. Really I mean, phenomenal. if you look at the Super Bowl and you saw all these drones that were mm-hmm. dancing to the music and flying in precision, nothing crashing into each yeah. other. Uh, Who would have it, predicted that three right. or four years ago? Huh? This is totally new. And that last one again is augmented virtual reality. The idea that we'll be looking at glasses more than just entertainment—it's going to be fantastic to use uh, for training our public safety officials in simulated situations. And to architectural design, giving people a better idea of new projects that are being contemplated and what they may look like, to enable citizens to and employees to walk around in a virtual environment to get a sense: is this working the way we think? Will it fit into these neighborhoods as we planned, or highway, whatever it is we're planning? Mm-hmm.
0: I uh, I was uh, when I was examining these uh, IT areas, emerging IT areas, as I mentioned, uh, I took a look at. In the time, back in time to when I was CIO in Massachusetts in the uh, early 90s, 93, 94, uh, 95. And I thought, what were the uh, emerging technologies then? And, you know, I actually signed this Commonwealth of Massachusetts first contract with an internet service provider. And in fact, it wasn't even called an ISP back in those days, right. it was just a local Cambridge uh, IT company. And I, that was number one. The second one was ERPs. Mm-hmm. And they weren't even called ERPs back then. They were let's redo, let's modernize the accounting system that was right. created probably in the in the '70s with Big Blue and others. And the other thing was WANS. We, we're, and I I used to have a I used to have a chart in my office. Each week I'd have a, a person that was responsible to let me know how many PCs have been rolled out to some of the seventy thousand state workers that required it over because it was a, it was a priority. We had to get it done because we couldn't have. We couldn't have everybody use a new financial system right. if they didn't have access to the the PC in a local area wide area network sure and finally the other one was was the beginnings of egov yes. I, I remember sitting <clears throat> down with david lewis who was dmv director and actually became cio a couple couple turns later but he came to me and said how can we get people to register their cars online that was the first e government application we started
1: E government has really progressed from static websites to interactive transactions. And now digital services basically has replaced it, although e gov internationally is still being used. Mm,
0: yeah. Uh, I jumped forward to California in 96 to 99. And, and the first thing emerging issues Y2K, that, was, uh, that covered almost everything else, and mobility and cell phones, and again, e government. But uh, it's it's interesting how times have changed. I'm sure you have a perspective on that too.
1: Oh yeah, I mean it's amazing. It just it, it depends on when you dial back. Uh, we do a whole series of books at PTI. One was CIO leadership for cities and counties. We published in 2009. Two words were never mentioned. We never mentioned cybersecurity, although we were using the word network security, and we never used uh, civic or social media. We never used Web 2.0. Hmm. That was 2009. Now we've since redone that book. Uh, and who knows, five years from now, what, what topics have we left out? Uh, but things are happening so quickly that it's really both fun, hard to keep up with, and for those who don't like change, they're in the wrong business.
0: <laughs> it's funny you mentioned about uh, the the term cybersecurity. I actually did a, uh, every year when the California budget comes out, you know, $200, $255 billion. And I would go through this 10,000-page document electronically, and I'd do a Alt F searching for cybersecurity.
1: Mm.
0: And this was last year, 2018 budget. Never mentioned. Yeah. Never mentioned. Yeah. Uh, but that's a good segue into the uh, discussion about cybersecurity because I know you mentioned it was high on your list. Tell us a little bit more of what your findings were on your survey about the programs and, and compliance among local governments.
1: Yeah, I mean, we didn't get into the deep technical aspects of, of cybersecurity. What we did want to find from our CIOs is what their concerns were. And we asked a number of questions. For example, uh, many states require cybersecurity training. Um, but I'm finding that's defined so differently. For some, it's like taking a one-hour course once a year. For some, it's a weekly program. So it varies all over.
0: Yeah, there's a big controversy about boxes box checking yeah. as opposed
1: to really doing something about yeah, it. Yeah, and I find what I'm seeing is totally inadequate. I really think there's a need for some greater guidelines, and a much more robust uh, kind of program. We found that 64 percent of our people surveyed developed security awareness training for workers and contractors. So that to me was a low number. I would think in today's world it would have been higher. Uh, We found that um, 50 percent established trusted partnerships for information sharing and response. That to me needs to go higher. In other words, if we are working with certain people, we need to uh, better engage with the trusted, known trusted entities, and then better protect for those who we don't necessarily know. Um, 42% had developed a cybersecurity framework. Nice. Um, <laughs> but I, I think the most important thing is the others. Only 35% developed a strategic plan. Now, to me, that is a plan of strategies moving into the future. Um, only 27% actually had a cybersecurity disruption response plan, like if something happens, what do you do? Who speaks for them? What are the reporting requirements? And there are some by law with penalty if you don't notify certain people within a prescribed amount of time. Um, Only 25% use metrics and testing to document program effectiveness. So, you know, other than that, you could say, oh, I took a course or I did this versus, has it been tested? Have you had perimeter testing and on what basis and by whom? Um, The other is, Cyber insurance. This is something that I think is going to gain more attention. Five years ago, it was unheard of. The premiums were relatively low, but now they're starting to have to pay out. And I think for the CIO, cyber insurance could be one's best friend. It's
0: interesting because uh, as I watched you and Doug on your webinar last week, uh, that's the first time I even heard of insurance for cybersecurity. I mean, it makes sense when you think about it, but... uh, it could be very, very expensive considering the tens of thousands of breaches we, we hear about, let alone the ones we don't,
1: that go on just in the United States. But here's where I think, uh, when I said this could be the best friend for a CIO, for those who struggle to get the funding, the systems and the people to maintain their systems to a level that they think is adequate, today insurance companies are really getting smart. They don't want to have to pay if they don't have to. I don't blame them. Just like car insurance, they reward people if they're good drivers. Um, but now they're asking, some of the forms for insurance go five, six pages, and they're asking you to certify that you're doing this, 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 this. Uh, So it is causing people some concern. Yes, you can get this insurance, but you cannot get it without doing things, and if you don't, your premiums will be very high, or you actually may not get the coverage at all.
0: Kind of like if you uh, apply for life insurance, they ask you about smoking and drinking, right?
1: That's the example I always <laughs> use. If you smoke 10 packs a day and you said you're a non-smoker, someone isn't going to get the premium. Yeah.
0: You know, it's interesting. You're talking about uh, uh, breaches and, and that kind of thing. You know, in California, they actually require uh, anybody that has a breach. I forget how many how many people are affected. Uh, it's that 500. They have to, is it it's 500 The trigger is 500 yeah.
1: publicly identifiable piece of information. They have to notify the press, let alone the Secretary of State, the state and CEO, the Attorney General. and the Attorney General. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting to document to go through. I did a freedom of information request from, you know, Senator uh, Kamala Harris when she was the Attorney General. Mm-hmm. I said I'd like to know some numbers. How many they would not give me that information of how many how many records were uh, breached.
1: Even the FBI uh, doesn't uh, divulge that information. So yeah. it is frustrating. We just know there's a lot going on through <laughs> anecdotal stuff and what we hear and who we know, but we don't have ac- adequate national data. Well, it's um it's only going to, well, we think it's only going to get worse. What, what,
0: what is, it, if you if you were a dictator and you could want, you know, with your magic wand, what would you do about all this hacking and breaches and, and, and the like? What would you do to change it?
1: I think I would move to a new platform. <laughs> I mean, when you think about it, the internet, uh, old as it is, has been incredibly successful. But in the days in which it was built, the architectural structure was that of a trusted environment. You know, it it catered to military, to military, and to public institutions such as colleges and universities. It didn't contemplate uh, all the different things that we are using it for today. Um, And so we need to reverse that. We almost have to have an Internet where no one is trusted. Mm -hmm. And then you have to go in and reverse engineer and prove who you are, prove all the things that we take for granted today, and then have to catch up after the fact. Or maybe we have to go back to the 1500s with
0: pirates. You always, they always hung the pirates because out at sea, they didn't want to put them in. They didn't have no place to put them in jail. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, now with, uh, with hackers, you know, maybe you have to bring back capital punishment for that.
1: Well, the, the, <laughs> the other problem is global. You know, we have a lot of things that are occurring or are, are off our shores. And so you know, everyone talks about the border, the border wall security. I think we need a national cybersecurity border patrol. To kind of guard because a lot of things are happening other places are coming through and there's no reciprocity in terms of what can happen in another country to punish those. It's one thing to even find somebody here in, in, in our you know territorial country, but it, it's elsewhere. We really need a digital border patrol.
0: Yeah, it's not going away. Our guest today is Dr. Alan Shark, Executive Director of the Public Technology Institute. You're listening to Ask the CIO SLED Edition on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm John Thomas Flynn.
1: Federal News Radio is now Federal News Network. We're the news organization of record for the federal community. Our mission is helping you meet your mission. Federal News Network.
0: Welcome back to Ask the CIO Sled Edition on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm John Thomas Flynn, and my guest today is Dr. Alan Shark, Executive Director of the Public Technology Institute. Alan, before the break, we were discussing security and all the implications, and I know there's a lot of other great stuff in your survey, so I want to move into that. Uh, the, w- the one that I'm looking at now involved the uh, how you expect to be impacted over the next year in terms of uh, overall IT, your IT staff, and staff development. This is an interesting topic, particularly with changes in the workforce.
1: Yeah, we, we're seeing a lot of challenges, and we have a new survey that has not been released yet, uh, but the one that is most current to us looked at what is going to be the spend looking into 2019. And I think what we're seeing is... Uh, the majority of those who responded saw things staying the same. Overall, IT budget, uh, staffing, and travel being about the same, and staff development being about the same. However, um, there was a, a, a quite an increase uh, in overall IT spending. Uh, we found that almost 40% uh, saw an increase, um, and in, uh, in, in a sm- to a smaller extent, about uh, 10% saw a decrease. The um, staff development, we saw actually uh, both an increase and a decrease kind of uh, competing with each other uh, uh, from some of the respondents. So it's kind of a mixed message. If I had to look at all the data that I had, I would say that uh, 2019 uh, will actually be about the same. Uh, Some will do better and some won't do as well because everyone has different funding mechanisms. Everyone has different life cycles that they're dealing with when it comes to technology.
0: You know, interesting. When everybody wants to know spend, particularly when you're in inside the Beltway here in D.C. Uh, they throw around the 90 billion dollars of federal IT spending thereabouts, and I always throw it back at them that state government is 30 or 40 percent higher. The last number I saw from Tech was 130 billion. Is that uh, you got a new update on that?
1: I don't. I've seen anywhere from a low of 70 billion to about 130 billion. Yeah, I would and, think so, yeah. and
0: and because I always fit bigger. California was <laughs> God. California is something else, you know, they, they, when I got there in 95, I said, how do you know how big the budget is? You say three, $4 billion. How do you know? And I was talking to the director of the department of finance and they said, well, we do a survey of the departments every year. That's mm-hmm. how they find out. Yeah. And fast forward 20 years later, still doing a survey. They still don't have an ERP system up that'll do it. Yeah. But, uh, so it's, it's big bucks when, when you, when you, uh, look at it and I imagine it's, uh, uh, I always I was a California, if California's $5 billion, multiply that by
1: 10, and that's probably the, the state government IT budget. But there's an irony, John, that, that amazes me, and that is the budgets are, are growing, generally. Uh, they're multi-billion dollar budgets. CIOs have an enormous responsibility, and yet we're seeing their discretionary uh, funds go down. So at a time when their overall budgets go up, they're finding it harder to send people to meetings. Sometimes there's these artificial barriers that you cannot uh, train out of state, Uh, but discretionary money is actually down, and that's causing some real heartache among people to try to keep up with all the new technologies.
0: That's interesting. Uh, And do you think that is because it's being taken over still by legacy
1: systems, or is it just uh, greater and greater responsibilities? Well, I I think the, the responsibilities clearly have increased as public expectations have increased. The expense in maintaining systems, obviously, uh, is a challenge. But I guess my point on the discretionary part is the training component. How do we keep people trained on all these trends, on all this new equipment, so that when they make decisions, they're making better informed decisions? I mean, local governments don't compete. We can learn from each other. And if they're not out there, uh, that can be a real problem. Uh, The other part of that equation is how much of the budget is totally fixed. That's actually going to be a trend that's going to present a challenge because we're moving from a CapEx environment to an OpEx, meaning things that could be capitalized over many years now are on the uh, operating budget, which means that you have less flexibility overall. So you will have less discretionary money for new things because of prior commitments under contract. And at the same time, that discretionary money for training and development will also have to be down because we, we haven't adjusted our government budgets to allow for bigger uh, annual budgets as opposed to being able to amortize things over a period of time. I see. Um, we haven't talked too much about cloud yet, but I'm sure we will. Uh,
0: but I just wanted, I had an observation, and I'd be interested in your opinion. You know, back in the day, back in the early 90s, there was a great effort about privatization, outsourcing, fancy word for outsourcing then, uh, consolidation of data centers and networks, telecommunication providers. And it faced very, very tough oppositions. As you know, a couple of uh, local governments in California uh, done it. Connecticut tried big time and failed at the very last minute to get it done. Uh, I made a statement the other, the other day at NASIO. I said, you know, cloud, the cloud migration is doing to the data centers what outsourcing we tried to do with data centers 15, 20 years ago.
1: Mm-hmm. What do you think? I think it's it makes sense today. It may not have made as much sense five years ago. Um, and it's also how you define the cloud. Do you put everything? Is it infrastructure in the cloud? Is it applications in the cloud? Is it a combination of those things? I find it very exciting, especially for some of the smaller governments that find it harder and harder to maintain staff. It's harder to attract staff. It's harder to keep staff when they can do better on the outside. If you can have bigger companies... Uh, maximize their resources and provide the same, if not better, level of services, that's a good way to go. You have a better idea of expenses, and the larger groups can amortize equipment and continue to modernize where local governments can't. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it's a good thing. The I think the biggest stumbling block—we did a survey talking about going back in time where something like 90 percent of our CIO said— they would never go to the cloud because they have a legal mandate to protect and own their data. I remember. Now, 90% will say, we see no choice but to go to the cloud because security has really improved. Um, and I think it's matured to the point that people feel that the biggest problems or challenges they were worried about have been addressed. Let me throw this out uh, as the ants in the picnic on
0: all this. One of the things in, in, that I learned in California early on when we tried to consolidate data centers – it actually took legislation to do it finally, and we're talking about two major data centers: a health and welfare data center and the general government uh, government operations data center, if you will. Each of them with a budget of, or in the neighborhood of a hundred million dollars a year. So they got consolidated, and the legislature approved it. Oh, and they had a thousand employees hmm. altogether. Do you know how many jobs were eliminated by that consolidation? <laughs> two. Two. Yeah. Two. Two managers' jobs. And of course, that leads me to the question: When you have, you know, I think there's two point two million government workers in California alone, mm-hmm. paying, you know, let's say, let's say a million, paying a thousand thousand dollars a year in dues. That's two billion dollars. And how how are you going to get the kind of changes in the public sector that reality is forcing on us? But there's that political side of it that really makes these kind of changes difficult. Yeah. I
1: know you don't have the answer to that, but it's no. just, I can kick it around, right? Yeah. No, it's a real problem. I, no one wants to get rid of good talent and people who have loyal, who've served. Uh, I think where it gets tricky is some people I've heard are keeping people because they don't want to lose their headcount. And the people that they're keeping, they try to change <laughs> and train into new areas and they refuse. I'm less sympathetic for someone who was hired 20 years ago for one thing and doesn't want to learn something new. But for those who have been loyal, it is it is a political nightmare. We're going to have to wait for a few generations or some very serious budget cuts to force that kind of change.
0: Yeah. And obviously, uh, in California, I think the latest number was a $27 billion surplus. Ain't nobody talking about reductions in force, <laughs> right. let me tell you. No. Yeah. It is a challenge, and it's been a challenge since FDR's times, frankly. Yeah. Uh, yeah when a lot of this uh began. well and then we have
1: artificial intelligence we read reports about yeah. what will employment look like you know in 2050 and there's some very scary scenarios and people say oh this happens in history and we always backfill with new technologies that we're not even aware of today and my answer is that sounds good that has worked in the past but the speed of change has become so dizzying how do we possibly backfill fast enough to keep people employed in a society where we're very often defined by what we do, yeah, exactly, and where we go to work. That's
0: exactly like from the movie. You know, a monkey could do your job. Yeah. Sometimes I look at what I'm doing and I say, "Hmm, okay, <laughs> keep that resume fresh, my friend." It is a uh, interesting times, no question. Uh, one of your one of your last slides was the the outs and ins of technology in uh, local government. Very, very interesting. Why don't you walk us through a few of these more interesting ones? I was particularly uh, uh, amused by, by some of your characterizations here, because a lot of it's very, very true.
1: Well, thank you. Um, every year we scan um, the end of 2018, all the best articles and blogs that are out there. And so I've been tasked with coming up with an in and out. I've been doing this for 12 years. So the top 10 that we have uh, would be cybersecurity as a concern versus cybersecurity as a crisis, which we kind of touched upon. It's, it's really all-consuming, because that's what the public sees. We lose trust in government, Um, all else will fail. Our guest today is Alan Shark, Executive Director of the
0: Public Technology Institute. You're listening to Ask the CIO SLED Edition on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm John Thomas Flynn.
1: Follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Find us on Podcast One. Like us on Facebook. Our mission is helping you meet your mission. Federal News Network.
0: Welcome back to Ask the CIO SLED Edition on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm John Thomas Flynn, and my guest today is Dr. Alan Shark, Executive Director of the Public Technology Institute. Alan, before we, uh, before we pulled away, we were talking about the ins and outs, so to speak, of technology in the local government. Why don't you please continue? Sure.
1: Um, uh, at the top 10, based on all the blogs and research that we see, um, we see cybersecurity as a concern moving more towards an end, which is a crisis, meaning it requires far more attention uh, and, and, and resources. Number two is interesting in that we see a perimeter-based security focus evolving to a holistic active monitoring and response system. What we mean by that is in the old days, hey, we could have a firewall and we're good. Now we have to have everything monitored, logs of looking at all the data that's coming in and out of the enterprise and be able to monitor it and react very, very quickly. Number three, everything is talked about as smart, smart cities, smart counties, Um, We now talk about smart applications. We see that being eclipsed by smart government. I mean, we have to face it. It's really about, in fact, perhaps even a better word would be smarter government because smart assumes that we reach a certain plateau and we're there. Smarter means it's still in progress. Um, Number four, uh, database transactions were evolving into more blockchain as a more secure digital universe that uh, does a better job of tracking and protecting the integrity of data um, we see something interesting at the local level where Uber-Lyft, which is so controversial for a couple of years, where governments are trying to find every way to kind of stop them, now embrace them and are using them in very innovative ways. But now we're seeing an I embrace think of, I think it's called licensing fees. Yes. Well, it could be. <laughs> but they're using them to, to usher seniors to medical appointments and finding this is augmenting their existing fleets uh, and saving money. But now we're moving towards bikes, scooters, and autonomous vehicles. So— That has changed in just one year. Uh, Smart software is being eclipsed by artificial intelligence. And then robotics is being uh, changed over to robots and bots. And mostly we're talking about software type of bots and chatbots that we're actually employing in local government today. And innovation, which is such a buzzword, so misunderstood, really is about change management. Innovation, to be truly understood, is really doing things differently, which may or may not involve technology, But regardless, we have to prepare people for change at every level of a decision. And then virtual and augmented reality, we were trying to define the nuances of both. Now it's mixed reality. Uh, Both of these technologies have come together. And the last one gets back to the point we were talking about earlier. The idea and the struggle to find and retain good staff is being eclipsed by managing IT. And therefore, external staff and resources may be a way and a salvation for those who are cash-starved, lack the leadership, and the necessary uh, resources and space, that is a major shift in, in, in things that I see that may save some of the smaller localities. You know, it may
0: be on this uh, particular uh, slide, but it also could be on your on your next one. And that was the issue that came up to me when I was reading this about municipal Wi-Fi, mm-hmm. municipal broadband. It was such a big issue. In fact, it goes back to Iowa, back when I was in Massachusetts. But it's a much more of a local issue. Government issue, isn't it? And where is where is municipal Wi-Fi in trouble? Days?
1: In trouble. In fact, it goes back to 2003, <clears or> a little <throat> bit before. I, I think the first place to really start uh, experimenting was Corpus Christi, Texas. Uh, I had just come to PTI at that point, and we had conferences that brought in hundreds of people. And Muni Broadband was a big deal. And um, and but today, where we are today, we have 21 states that have laws that basically prohibit localities. <laughs> from doing their own thing. Geez, I wonder who was behind that legislation. (laughs) (laughs) It's an amazing story unto itself. And it's been very frustrating. It doesn't address the needs of rural America. It doesn't address the needs of those unserved. Um, I think in the end, we need to have partnerships that work. And that's actually something that I think moving forward will actually happen. But in unserved areas, there's no reason in the world. If the locality has the wherewithal, we must provide this to our citizens Um, and then work out the details later. We can contract with the incumbents to provide services at some point, and we get to a certain service level, then we turn over and partner with them. We don't want to compete with them. We're actually trying to develop systems where systems don't exist or are unaffordable.
0: You know, Yesterday, uh, this is, I think, the National Council of Mayors is in town, or at least a contingent of them, and I uh, interviewed Mayor Sylvester Turner from Houston, and also Tony Towson Towns Whitney, who's the president of Regulated Industries for Microsoft. And a number of things we talked about, particularly about it was based on smart cities, and mm-hmm. Houston certainly uh, 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 builds themselves that way, and for good reason. Uh, but we also got on this issue of a digital divide in smart cities because there's a major issue here about the haves and the have-nots, again, with smart city. Those who have the technology, have the broadband, have the knowledge, have the training, can take advantage of it, and a lot of people can't just for the thing, just for the reasons you're talking about, access, training, skills, the whole nine yards.
1: Yeah, a smart city is a connected city. Mm-hmm. It has to be. That is the foundational uh, layer uh, for digital infrastructure where all things can happen, and if we have people that are either disenfranchised, can't afford it, uh, it's not available, uh, or a lack of training and understanding, that's a, a, a real uh, challenge. Although, uh, There are some really innovative programs that are helping, but it is clearly, if we don't address this issue, um, we're going to have a lot of unserved people that are going to miss the boat.
0: Mm -hmm. And there's got to be money to be made, even if it's going to be subsidized. I mean, there's got to be money to be made when people have access. Think how many more customers Amazon could have if everybody had access to the internet. Yeah. Basic stuff. Anyway, let's jump over to, I think, think the most interesting of your slides, and certainly uh, we put our... uh, fortune teller hats on. That's the top policy issues in local government for 2019. Yeah. You start off with net neutrality. Why is it the earth didn't stop when the Trump administration uh, ended the the net neutrality act?
1: Well, I think when it, again, this is from a local government perspective. I think people would be surprised that local governments are concerned about this. I mean, clearly, I think there's a feeling that uh, local governments are powerless, even though you know we have 80,000 units of local government. But it's a big deal in terms of who controls the airwaves, who controls access. And this gets into the digital divide. Uh, It gets into so many different issues. So it is very upsetting to many people. And at the same time, we feel somewhat powerless. We turn to our national associations uh, to help correct this. I mean, California is almost like a country unto itself. um, And they've taken actions, uh, as a few other uh, state attorney generals, uh, to protect the, uh, the lanes, the digital lanes to make sure that, uh, that there's no artificial barriers uh, to access. You mentioned
0: uh, disruptive technologies. We've already talked about autonomous vehicles, but procurement reform. Boy, the problem doesn't go away, huh? Anywhere, as federal, state, local, what can we do
1: about this mess? Uh, I I think there should be some federal guidelines that might help. Um, you think they're doing a better job? Uh, they're they, they, In some ways, they are. In some ways, they are because they have— like when it comes to the cloud, they have FedRAMP. Um, there are some mechanisms with the General Services Administration, GSA, um, whereas everyone else is left to do their own thing. So now yeah. we have 50 systems in the states, and I'm not advocating for federal laws. I'm talking about framework or guidelines that might help. But there's a paranoia, and some of it is ignorance, where I cannot meet with vendors. I In, in our association, at PTI, we believe working with the vendors is critically important. It used to be five years ago there was a... Oh, we can't have them in the room. Really? Now it's like, oh, no, we want them in the room. We you know, we have a certification program for technology leadership uh, and for CIOs at the local level. We have a West Coast class, and East Coast class. We're now, for the first time, accepting vendors. Mm-hmm. And the experiment has paid off. People love that exchange. And that's the beginning point. How do we let people know of the needs of an organization before it becomes an RFP? You know, well, when I went over to the dark side, that's the private sector, as we used to call it in Boston, uh,
0: I had some resistance from certain IT leaders about taking a meeting, and I, when I finally bumped into them, I, I wasted no time telling telling them I pay your salary. Mm. I'm a I'm a citizen too here, and there's no right. reason why you can't meet with me. And I'd run it up the flagpole, and I had, geez, I used to call the governor's office sometimes. I want to talk to the economic development office. And they'd say, okay, what can we do for you, Mr. Flynn? And I said, well, we're considering moving our Western headquarters. To uh, California but we don't know what your IT strategic plans all about and spending so I think we're gonna go to Texas but if I could get in there and talk to the people who are in charge of that say no more mr. Flynn and before the end of the day I'd have that CIO calling me of course I would tell the the person in the governor's office don't use my name don't use
1: my name I think you know that's perfect on the state level but even the local level I think every local government should have a business council and to talk about the very things what is what is the roadmap? What are the things that you're looking for to answer those very questions? And what is the route in which we can understand more what your needs are? And let us make some suggestions in an open, fair forum where we're not violating any laws.
0: I wonder, we only have a couple minutes left, and I wanted to sh- switch over to privacy and the next word, surveillance. That's what caught my eye. There is a woman named Soshana Zuboff. Uh, she's a, one of the first female professors at Harvard Business School. And I would actually read her, her book 30 years ago, The Age of the Smart Machine, she just came out with a new book that I just found out about last week called uh, Surveillance Capitalism. And basically, what it is, is that the, uh, uh, you know, where you had uh, Ford invented uh, mass production capitalism, General Motors had managerial uh, capitalism. This is surveillance capitalism, all about the, uh, you know, the usual suspects that we know about collecting data. And she went on to say, that surveillance capitalism unilaterally claims human experience as free raw material for translation into behavioral data, and thus targeted advertising. Are we? Is he not? Are you familiar with the General Data Protection Act over in Europe, where yes. there's All right. Are we going to have one of those in the United States? California has one starts uh,
1: next year. California is working on it. I was just there. In fact, I that was in Sacramento just two days ago. Um, they're working on it. I think others are working on it. I mean, a lot of people say, oh, it doesn't affect us. But in this global economy, so many of our companies and even governments today work with them. And if we even work with those in Europe, we fall under the GDPR. So there are some basic principles that I, I think are good. Uh, I think we've probably gone too far with the monetization. Of data. And I think that's really what it is. I mean, to me, there's a difference between surveillance, which sounds ugly and looks like they're spying on us to learn about our personal lives, versus our personal habits without attribution to us personally. There are ways to uh, disengage those two things and learn more about buying habits generally um but it's hard the technology is so far ahead of of the of the regulations i walk i would leave a cvs or a walgreens they already know everything that exactly. i bought they know i have a cold they know <laughs> awful, what medicines they know my prescriptions and i don't want
0: to go on a search engine online anymore uh, it scares the hell out of me yeah. I, it's uh, it, i think it's you know it's interesting california can have you can complain all you want but that this thing i think they're i think
1: they're right in line they've with the they've always been leaders in the regulatory front
0: Well, this has been very interesting. I wish we had more time, but that's going to have to conclude our program today, Alan. I want to thank you for being here, Alan Shark, Executive Director of the Public Technology Institute, and thank you for listening. Content from this state and local program, which also includes curated news and original articles by yours truly and other more esteemed authors, I'd like to add, is part of the recently expanded AskTheCIO.com. Hope you can join us again each Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time or listen to a podcast afterwards. Until then... Bye for now. I'm John Thomas Flynn. You've been listening to Ask the CIO, Sled Edition with John Thomas Flynn on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.